Hey, homegirls and homeboys, I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda, and we're the Homicide Homegirls. Just two best friends discussing true crime cases that they can't stop obsessing over. If you're like us and your guilty pleasure is serial killer documentaries, whodunit mysteries, and procedural police shows, then you are in the right place. So buckle up, Buttercup, grab an adult beverage, and get ready, because on Wednesdays, we talk murder. Happy Wednesday. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome to episode 37. I still can't believe we've made it this far. Honestly. Like, but hey, we're here. Golly. I know, like, who thought, you know? And I read in one of the podcast groups I met on Facebook, I read about how um, most podcasts don't make it past, like, episode 25. Really? So... So yay us! Um, I also read that a lot of podcasts don't even make it past like a teaser. Something about out of like seven hundred thousand podcasts on Apple, only like four hundred thousand are still active. So almost half. Seven hundred thousand. Yes, there's that many podcasts. It's kind of ridiculous. That is a lot. But then when you think of the remain, the active ones, it's yeah. like oh, we're just another fish in the sea. Yeah. Right. But anyways, yeah, we made it. So, you know, fake it till you make it. I guess yeah totally (laughs) but um that's because of you guys our amazing listeners so really quick thank you you're the reason that we're able to do this and speaking of I'm sure you guys have noticed that we recently activated ads and look I know how annoying ads are but the truth is they're just a necessary evil and we're not trying to get rich but if we want to get better we need to make a little bit of money and we don't make a lot of money at our regular job, so. No. Especially if you want to fix our quote-unquote audio issues so assholes can stop bitching. Haters. So, we eventually want to build, like, our own tiny recording studio. Like a she shed, but we're going to, like, call it the homegirl hut. Or, like, the pod cave or the pod lair. Right. I don't know. We'll have to brainstorm a name, but you get the point. Um, we've also enabled listener support on Anchor as well, so if you're so inclined to donate a few bucks to us that way, we would really appreciate it. Um, there's a link in the show notes of this episode, and we are also trying to get a Patreon up and running really soon. We just have to find time to release bonus content that our listeners would like. Um, speaking of Patreon, if anyone has any suggestions on the type of bonus content, you know, they'd be willing to pay for on Patreon. Whether it be additional episodes, random, um, some more, uh, recaps like we did yeah, of Tiger like, King. Um, um, documentary um, recaps, right. stuff like that. Yeah. So just let us know what y'all would want to see and we'll take that into consideration. Um, yeah, shoot us a message, send us an email and let us know. Holla at your home girls. <laughs> right. So now that all that awkward stuff is yeah, kind of out stuff of the way. Yeah, that stuff makes me so uncomfortable. I know. Um, when I was trying to decide what case I wanted to do next, I was like, man, we haven't covered a serial killer in a while. 
And I look. You mean you haven't covered a serial killer? Amanda's in a very while. intimidated by serial killer cases. I am. There's and those a lot are of victims, favorites. and there's right. a lot of content, and I just right. Whew. Right. So it's actually been since episode nine. Ronald, Ronald Dominique. Yeah. Ronald, Ronald McDonald. No. Hot boy Ronald. Okay. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Not hot boy Ronald at all. Um, but that was almost a year ago. And you no know, way. Yes, it was oh, like October, shit. I think, or the end of September. Yeah, time flies when you're having fun. But as you all know, we're trying to cover more states. So I was like, hmm, let me pick a serial killer from a state we haven't done yet. And I actually, like, I get these random emails from Reddit randomly. Mm-hmm. Random emails randomly, but whatever. Um, and I got this graphic emailed to me on Reddit. And I guess because I'm in, like, true crime subreddits or whatever. Like, they'll send me true crime stuff. Mm-hmm. It was, like, uh, this graphic of, like, the most prolific serial killers by state. I think okay. I sent it to you. Yes, you did. And I did not read it. I know you didn't. And I was like, hmm, I'm going to pick one of these. So that's how I landed on Stephen Brian Pinnell from Delaware. So serial killer Stephen Brian Pinnell was known as the Route 40 killer or the Corridor killer. Um, I've seen it both used. Is that because he was close to a interstate corridor? Yeah, like Route 40 and US 13. That's kind of where he hunted or, you like, know, frequented. Like in Cheyenne's case, I think they said that she lived close to the I-55 corridor. Oh, right. Yeah, like U.S. 40 corridor, I guess. Corridor, I think it's, or, I'm sorry, Route 40 and U.S. 13. I think they're pretty close. They might even intersect. I'm not sure. But, so, Pinnell would lure women into his blue Ford panel van where he tortured them and then killed them. So, basically, he was a real trash bag human. But you can draw your own opinions of him once I'm finished. Ready? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, before we get more into what an absolute waste of oxygen this loser was, let's take a quick break for a word from this week's sponsor. Stephen Brian Pinnell was born on November 22nd, 1957. But besides this, there wasn't much information released regarding his childhood. Mm-hmm. Like, I literally could not find anything. Yeah. But it it is said that he came from, like, a normal, stable upbringing mm-hmm. by, like, all accounts. Which was interesting to me and just brings up the whole nature versus nurture debate. Uh-huh. You know what I'm talking Wait, about? No, you know, no. oh, okay. It's, so it's the argument over whether people are just born inherently evil or if, if the evil within them is created by traumatic experiences in their childhood. Like I always say, it starts at home. Right. So, like, most serial killers have, like, pretty messed up childhoods that involve abuse, whether it's physical, sexual, or ne- neglect. Like, just... A lot of serial killers have been through some really, excuse my French, but some really fucked up stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so it was interesting to me that Pinnell didn't have any of that, that we know of. That you could that we That I could find, yeah, that we know of. Which I feel like if he did, it would have come out. Um, So, like, I do believe that some people are just born, like, inherently evil. Like, and they have a predisposition to doing bad things. Mm -hmm. But I also know that some people are evil because of experiences or trauma that they endured as children. Mm. But that being said, there are tons of people who had really fucked up childhoods and didn't turn out to be a serial killer. So, like... So, is it even really a pattern? Is it, like, is it worth it to say that's the cause? Right. Right, and, like, that, it's, it's hugely debated. Like, nature versus nurture. So, it's, like... 
basically like nature would be like they were just born evil and it doesn't matter what you do or how much attention you give them Mm -hmm. or how good you treat them they are just born evil and are gonna do horrible things and then nurture is like you know the other side of it where like they were neglected or abused and that caused them to or the complete opposite or what like they were brought up in perfectly good homes and Mm -hmm. i guess that goes back to the the nature. nature yeah yeah so like i've just always but like the other the thing is like you said a lot of people go through some shitty mm-hmm. upbringings and they're okay like yeah. basically like i have this crutch and i'm gonna lean on exactly. it and i'm gonna use it as an right. excuse and i feel like a lot of times serial killers do use that as a crutch like oh well this is what happened to me as a kid which like it's not an excuse bye <laughs> so like this whole debate has just always really fascinated me and I think at the end of the day, like, my stance on the whole issue is that serial killers don't fit one specific mold. Yeah, and, it's case by case. Yeah, and, like, all serial killers aren't created equal. Please don't stop listening to us for that bad joke. <laughs> but for real, like, I, I don't think there's just, like, one way for somebody to become a serial killer. Like, mm-hmm. there's not, like, a, oh, you did X, Y, and Z, so you're going to be a serial killer. Yeah. There is something called the McDonald Triad, which... We'll talk about it in an episode, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Probably one where a serial killer actually had that. Mm-hmm. It's like three three different things. I want to say it's like bedwetting and childhood. Animal, and animal, childhood abuse. animal cruelty and setting fires. Yeah. I think. Don't come for me if that's wrong because that's from memory. But basically. If um, those three are present. All the three like, or one of. Two of the three or all, all three. The likelihood of them. I don't want to say being, like, a serial killer or committing, like, but crimes. seriously questionable behavior. Yeah. Is, like, likely. And I'll get more into that on, like, another episode. But, like I said, this guy doesn't have anyway. any of that that we know of. But, um, anyway, so, sorry for the long tangent, but, I don't know, it was just something that has kind of fascinated me. And, I don't know, it's just kind of scary that I can do everything in my power to be a good parent and my children could still end up being little psychopath serial killers who may or may not try to murder me in my sleep. So, like, cool, you know, but moving on. So, Stephen Brian Pinnell, he led a pretty normal life by all accounts. He was married to Vera Catherine Pinnell, who went by Kathy, and the couple had two children. Pinnell was an electrician with no criminal record to speak of, which, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it is it is like that. They don't have a criminal record, but then you have serial killers like Derek Todd Lee who have committed crimes since they were 13, mm-hmm. you know. So, like, it's... That's so weird. Yeah, like, zero did you just criminal snap record. one day? Right. Or he just hit it well enough. So, I've read in a few places that Pinnell actually became an electrician after many failed attempts to gain employment with the state police. Oh, God. Good thing he never became a police officer. Right? And, like, I don't know why he was denied. Like, what the failed attempts yeah. were. Yeah. Or, like, yeah. Because background check obviously came out clean. Right. So, like, I don't know what it was. But, you know. Hey. Definitely don't mind him being a cop. But James Hedrick, who's a former Newcastle County police captain and a member of the, spoiler alert, eventual task force that would hunt for Pinnell, he told Delaware Today, quote, he was your typical all-American person. He came across as a totally normal married father with no criminal record. No one would look at his background and see signs that this could happen. No one would ever suspect him of anything, end quote. That's I had to terrifying. freaking interview this man. Who? Stephen Pinnell, like, 
What, at what point? I know we're still early on, but sir, what was the trigger? What made you right. flip the script? Right. You know the answer to that? Maybe. Maybe not. You a hoe. You have to see. <laughs> Your mom's a hoe. <laughs> but we knew that. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's always like the normal people that you have to watch out for. Like the... Like... So not normal people. Like well, the, the seemingly normal. Like no, the like the extremely normal ones. Right. Like trying too hard to be normal. Yeah. Cause or like, the quiet ones. Yeah. I mean, like Dennis Rader, BTK, was married and had children too. All while he was torturing and murdering people. And his family had no idea. Wow. Like, so it happened. I mean, it does happen, you know? I mean, even like Ted Bundy had a girlfriend who had a daughter. Like, like maybe he just like, I don't know. What's it called? Like, um, Jekyll and Hyde? Yeah. Like, like two personalities. Different lives. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, um, alter ego. Yeah. But like, I don't know, it just blows my mind that, like, serial killers can lead entire, like, seemingly normal lives completely separate from their sadistic need to murder people. Like, but it among happens. Among other things. Yeah, among other things. But, like, it definitely happens. This is nuts to me. So, on November 29th, 1987, just three days after Thanksgiving... And his birthday, right? His birthday was the 22nd. Oh, yeah. Like, hmm. a week after his birthday. 23-year-old Shirley Ann Ellis was bringing a plate of Thanksgiving food to an AIDS patient that was currently undergoing treatment at Wilmington Hospital, which she was going like to visit her friend and bring him, you know, oh, okay. food. And um, So Shirley left her family's home in Newark's uh, Brookmont Farms development just before 6 p.m. to begin the 14-mile trip. Shirley planned to hitchhike along Route Girl, 40. Stop. This was 87, the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was an area she'd become pretty familiar with in her days as a sex worker. Oh, okay. The plot thickens. Right. However, at this time, Shirley had decided to try to make a better life for herself, and she decided that, you know, she didn't want to be a sex worker anymore. Mm-hmm. She wanted, you know, to make a, like I said, make a better life for herself. And she even purchased books for nursing school. Unfortunately, Shirley would never have a chance to attend nursing school and put those books to use. Mm-hmm. It's thought that a car pulled up and offered her a ride along Route 40. So, a few hours later, around 9.25 p.m., two teenagers were headed to, quote-unquote, park. Which, anyway. And they discovered the body of a female who was later identified as 23-year-old Shirley Ann Ellis. I mean, I'm not trying to be crude, but, like, talk about a mood killer. I mean... Wait, so, okay. So, the, where do they locate her? It was, like, this um, area where people went, like, to park, I guess. I don't know exactly. But, yeah. Okay. So... It wasn't at a park. It wasn't... In a no, parking. when I said they went to park. No, I know where yeah. you... Yeah. I know what you're saying. But it wasn't, like, a really a public area. No, not really. It's kind of, like... Secluded, almost. Something you never want to roll up on. Right. Right. So, Shirley was found partially clothed, wearing a pair of aqua blue pants, which were pulled down to her knees with her legs spread apart. Shirley's shirt was also found open. And she had been bound at her feet and ankles, and police found black duct tape still stuck to her hair. Well, in her hair. And it's assumed that... So, this is not even three hours later. Right. So, it's assumed that um, the duct tape 
was used to try to keep her quiet. Mm -hmm. And according to court records, Shirley's injuries were extensive and included ligature strangulation marks around her neck, multiple skull lacerations consistent with being struck by a hammer, wrist injuries suggestive of binding, and a pattern of bruising to the left breast and nipple. And I was actually able to find an episode of the ID TV show Grave Secrets mm-hmm. on Stephen Brian Pinnell. And a lot of the law enforcement officers who were involved in that investigation were interviewed, um, like James Hedrick, the one that I said mm-hmm. earlier. Um, and according to the detective who worked Shirley's case and originally responded to the scene, both of Shirley's nipples had been mutilated with what appeared to be a pinching device, similar to pliers. Oh, God. The medical examiner determined Shirley's cause of death to be strangulation and blunt force trauma. According to the autopsy, there was no evidence of sexual assault, but there was evidence that Shirley was tortured with work tools before she was murdered. Wow. Investigators believe Shirley's killer tortured her, then strangled her with a ligature of some type Mm -hmm. around her neck and bludgeoned her over the head three times with a cylindrical object similar to a hammer. And I think he actually crushed her skull or... Um, cracked her mm-hmm. skull. I'm trying to remember how he said it. but So, trying to identify a possible motive behind Shirley's murder really puzzled investigators. Because according to DelawareToday.com, uh, an interview with Kathleen Jennings, who was the prosecutor on Stephen Pinnell's case, she said, quote, There was no reason for Shirley Ellis to be killed. No angry boyfriend or anything that would connect a murderer to her death. For a time, people believed it was an interstate trucker, end quote. Wow. I guess because she was on so, Route 40. And she, and she used to be a sex worker. Right. So, the press picked up on the murder of Shirley Ellis fairly quickly, and, like, of course, they ran, like, wildfire with it. Um, so, like, obviously, people in the community were terrified. I mean, there's a freaking psycho, mm-hmm. you know, living among you, um, possibly just, like, biding his time until he could kill somebody else. And, unfortunately, the people of Delaware would have their worst fears realized just seven months later when the body of another female was discovered. So, Catherine DeMaro, a 31-year-old mother of two, was last seen walking along Route 40 around 11.30 p.m. on the night of June 28, 1988. So, Catherine, like Shirley, had a history of arrest for sex work, but police are uncertain if she was actually working the night that she accepted a ride from a stranger in a blue van. The following morning, on June 29th, 1988, at about 6.30 in the morning, the completely nude body of Catherine DeMauro was located on a construction site by the workers building an apartment complex. Can you imagine showing up to work and you find a dead body? So... <clears throat> with Shirley, was there any evidence of sexual assault? Mm-mm. No. no. But no. she was... I said that. ...busted shirt and... And mutilated. And her pants were down. Mm-hmm. And this girl was completely nude. Mm-hmm. No... I'll get there. But yeah, he did not sexually assault Shirley Ellis, which was confusing to the detectives too because of the way that her body was found. Right. So... The circumstances surrounding Catherine's murder were eerily similar to those of Shirley Ellis's. Catherine's wrists and ankles were bound, and police removed a piece of black duct tape from her hair. Wow. And just as with, just as with Shirley Ellis, there were no signs of sexual assault. However, the ME determined that Catherine's cause of death was multiple blunt force injuries and strangulation, 
the exact same cause of death as Shirley Ellis. Mm. Now, do they know, like, approximately how far apart their bodies were? Like, See, I couldn't find exactly, like, where their bodies were found, so mm, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but, so just like Shirley, Catherine's body also exhibited ligature marks and signs of torture. Police concluded that Catherine was tortured and mutilated with work tools, then strangled with a ligature and bludgeoned with a hammer. One of the only differences between Catherine's case and Shirley's case is that Catherine was found completely nude. Mm-hmm. And detectives also noted that it seemed as if Catherine wasn't murdered where her body was found. It seemed that she was murdered elsewhere um, and her body was just dumped there. Mm-hmm. So there was one more difference between Catherine and Shirley. The Emmy found blue fibers on Catherine DeMarro's body. Mm. So there was like no evidence found on Shirley Ellis. No DNA. No, no DNA, nothing. no semen, no nothing. Um, but on Catherine DeMarro, they found these blue fibers. Mm-hmm. So, and these blue fibers would end up being a crucial piece of evidence in this case. And detectives were able to determine that the blue fibers were carpet fibers that were only manufactured in a small quantity in that area. So they knew they were looking for blue carpet of some sort, which... Was it vehicle carpet? They didn't know that at the time, but it was. Damn, I'm good. Yeah. (laughs) Because investigators realized that there were many similarities between the murders, a week after Catherine DeMarro's murder, the Delaware State Police and the Newcastle County Police Department joined forces and created a task force. But, um... That I already alluded to. So... This task force consisted of around 60 members and was yeah, and was the state's third largest police department for a while. What the hell? Yeah, because Delaware Delaware is so tiny. I mean, you blink and you miss Delaware on a map. Yeah, for real. Girl, I was looking for Delaware on the map and I was like, where the fuck is Delaware? I was like, oh, that's the smallest state. And I was like, oh, wait, no, that's Rhode Island. It's not? Oh, I don't even know. Like, we have discussed this on many time, many episodes. Don't come for me with my geography because I'm horrible right, at right, it. Right, right. So, detectives from both murder cases started working together and comparing notes. And when they realized that they may have a serial killer on their hands, and they were like, whoa. Like, we're not equipped to haunt a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Like, at all. I mean, they're super tiny. Like, Delaware itself is tiny, but like a county within Delaware, mm-hmm. you know? So... County. <laughs> I know it's so weird because like we have but everybody else probably thinks we're weird because we have parishes Um, but so they called in the FBI to consult on the case this is how it's done Ralph Bell's case right shade yeah the shade is real so the FBI came in and created a profile of the type of suspect investigators should be looking for the FBI profile stated that they would be looking for a white male with a wife and children Whoa, whoa, how'd you get to that? Huh? How did they even... Well, statistically, most serial killers don't don't murder outside of their race. Most don't. Now, yeah, there like are the people wife and like children Jared Dudley. Oh, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. But no, like, statistically, most people don't murder outside of their race. And most people have, like, a specific type. Right, like, there's brunettes sex workers or yeah there's the likeliness between Mm -hmm. them but the whole wife and children thing i'm like what how how do you know that i don't know so yeah a white man with a wife and children who was a blue collar worker very familiar with using tools and working with his hands in a trade like construction someone who was an everyday normal person who could hold down a job 
someone that no one would ever suspect. And they surmised that the killer was very familiar with Route 40 and that he would likely hunt the area with a rape kit. Not like a investigative rape kit. No, like a torture kit. Yeah. Like a, yeah. Um, I was like, why would he have that? Right. And but, um, one of the one of the investigators on the TV show I watched, it was actually a really good episode, um, he said when the FBI told him, like, it's somebody who's, like, works with his hands and, like, you know, probably is, like, a blue-collar worker, and he was like, whoa, like, how did you get that? And they're like, the FBI guy was like, well, he's using tools Tool. to torture these women, and it's probably things that he's very comfortable with, things that he uses daily. Mm-hmm. So I was like, man, the whole, like, profiling uh the art of profiling or science of profiling that blows my mind and fascinates me but we're gonna talk about that too yeah we're gonna but we're gonna talk about profiling again later uh i lost my spot because one of the this is why oh rape kit rape kit i hate you golly amanda so, one of the suggestions the FBI made was to have a female officer go undercover as a sex worker, dressed like the victims would have dressed, you know, walking or working the same areas that the victims were known to be in, and to speak to anyone who stops in the way a sex worker would. Like, you know, oh, you're looking for a good time, like, yeah. whatever. So, detectives recruit a brand new Newcastle Police Department cop named Renee Tasher to be their decoy. And when I say new, I mean new new. Yeah, but you that's what you want yeah. because she's young you, and Well, no, because once you're trained as a police officer, you, you can't oh, forget right. it. You the way you walk, the way you carry yourself. Yeah, that's I guess why, I never thought about that's that. That's why I was the perfect person to be an undercover narcotics agent mm-hmm. because Are you allowed to talk about that? Yes. Oh, okay. Um don't come for her. <laughs> yeah, so when I did UC work, um, they wanted somebody who had never been to a post academy mm-hmm. because you can't for, you can't erase you can't your training deprogram that from your brain right so yeah that and, makes sense and I guess I didn't think about that yeah. but but I mean she had been on the job for six months so she was a new yeah um, so officer Tasher agreed to help and in July 1988 the decoy operation officially began so, Officer Tashner is fitted with a wire, and she begins walking a section of Route 40. So, like, she starts flirting with every, quote-unquote, John that pulls over, and she's looking for those who specifically fit the FBI's profile. Because mm-hmm. she obviously doesn't want to get in a car with somebody who's not their guy, or right. who wouldn't be their guy. Right, and she was actually instructed to never, like, she was not to get in a vehicle ever. Like, with a John, like, mm-hmm. ever. That's... Well, and I'll talk about that, but, mm-hmm. um, so, obviously, detectives weren't far, and they could actually see her, like, in their mm-hmm. line of sight. They were monitoring they're all her. about having a cover team. Yeah, yeah, and mm-hmm. they were listening, you know, via the wire. So, according to Officer Tashner on the show Grave Secrets that I mentioned previously, she always had a gun on her, like, just in case. That's bad. What? It's terrible. What? Like, being undercover and having a gun? Mm-hmm. Well, so... She had a special purse that had, like, a secret pocket in it. Mm-hmm. So she could have her hand on the weapon at all times. And she had it, like, aimed at the person, like, who she was talking to. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is that, like, against? I didn't, have, I didn't have a gun. I didn't have a... I had a radio, but it was, like, in my console under a bunch of shit. Mm. Um, I had audio devices. I had um, 
I'm not going to go into specifics, but I had, like, things you would have never found. Mm. Like, I wasn't wearing a wire. Uh-huh. She was wearing a wire. Well, I mean, but, she, of course, what I was, she was doing, well, you were in a vehicle, but... No, like, an actual visible wire. Like, I was oh, wearing a gotcha, small gotcha. chip. I got you. Like, I was wearing a wire. Yeah, I got you. Hear. But this was also 88. Yeah, right. And, um, and that was the reason I didn't continue to do it is because I didn't feel safe. Like, yeah... Mm-hmm your cover team has your back or what if they don't right and that's just something like my cover team was good mm-hmm. but it's just something i could not cope with yeah because your anxiety was probably always yeah. like you're about to get murdered yeah and people saw right through my white girl ass because um you do not look like a druggie exactly you don't so, like i look like a preppy ass white girl you do like why are you in the why are you in this area trying to buy drugs from me right. you're and a narc i had i put like brown like um like nude brown makeup under my eyes like make me look sick like oh yeah like I, still no they saw right through me like I didn't, i've never done drugs in my life right so but yeah the whole they didn't want me to have a gun because if my dealer gets their hands on the gun it mm. could be go really bad or really quick oh i got you um so she would ask these john things like oh are you married like what's your name what do you do for a living and these guys would just tell her everything. You know what I call that? The power of the... No. Of the WAP? Yeah, the WAP. The power of the WAP. Yeah. Um. Actually, when you were talking about, like, when I said, like, oh, are you a narc? He actually asked her, like, people asked her... Uh, uh, spoiler alert, whatever, I'm just gonna say it. Um... She comes across Pinnell eventually, and mm-hmm. we'll get there, which is what they wanted, mm-hmm. you know. But um, job well done, huh? Job well done, right? But um, he asked her, "Are you a cop? Like, are you a cop or whatever?" And she was like, "No, are you a cop?" <laughs> and he like, "Oh yeah." And contrary to popular belief, you don't have to say you're a cop. No, you yeah. don't. Right? A if you're undercover, say, you don't. A lot of people say, if I ask you if you're a cop and you tell me no, that's against no. It's there's no law. There, it's you're undercover. Like, right? You don't, why would I just come out and? fucking say yeah i'm a cop you fucking got me let me get killed now right but it's just so funny because it's like i feel like everybody's like no i'm not a cop you're you're a cop like Uh are you a cop like are you a narc i was a narc you yeah you weren't i'm just i'm gonna start calling you that narc yeah narc i even had like a different name you've told me before but i can't remember but let's not say that on the podcast yeah so detectives Huh? I might get subpoenaed by that name. Oh. <laughs> oh, God. Was it Lady Glitter Sparkles? I wish it was. Some trolls. <laughs> anyway, so, so detectives were confident that their suspect would show up within a few days and that they'd be able to catch him before he struck again. But that didn't happen. And before detectives could find their suspect, another woman was reported missing. On August 22, 1988, Margaret Lynn Finner, a 26-year-old mother, was reported missing by her father. Like in the cases of the other two women we discussed, Margaret was known to be a sex worker. She was last seen working along US-13 in front of the General Wayne Motel, mm-hmm. which that seems like a likely place, place to, to work. Right. So an eyewitness came forward and told detectives that he saw Margaret get into a blue Ford van with rounded headlights on the night that she disappeared. Three months after her disappearance, Margaret's body was discovered 
either in or near. I've seen both. Mm-hmm. The Chesapeake and Delaware Canal by two hunters. Unfortunately, Margaret's body was too badly decomposed for the ME to determine a cause of death, likely from being in the water for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. So, due to this, no one has ever been charged with Margaret's murder. However, it is widely it has widely been speculated that Pinnell was responsible for her murder based on the eyewitness testimony. Because of the vehicle. Right, right. I mean, a blue Ford van with right. rounded headlights, like... So, speaking of the eyewitness testimony, detectives now knew they were looking for a blue Ford van. So that narrowed down homegirls, uh... Right, the, yeah, Officer Tashner's, mm-hmm. um, like, I guess, search, you know, mm-hmm. that helped with their profile. Mm-hmm. So, detectives were hopeful that this tip would help, you know, narrow their search, um, after weeks without any solid leads. I mean, they were out there all the time and right. hadn't gotten anything. On September 14, 1988, Officer Tashner was working along Route 40 when she noticed a blue van drove past her seven times in like 20 minutes. Wow. He was on the hunt. Mm-hmm. So, she called in the license plate number to her partner so they could run the plate later. Mm-hmm. The driver of the van eventually stopped for her, like, when she got into, like, a more secluded area, like, mm-hmm. of wherever she was walking, mm-hmm. which I guess makes sense, right. you know, um, and he motioned for her to get into the van, so she walked up, but she didn't get in, and she started a conversation with the driver, who was later identified as Stephen Brian Pinnell, and according to Officer Tashner, the guy just gave her, like, bad vibes. Like, unlike she had gotten from anyone else that had stopped yeah, for she, her she knew during this operation. She knew, like, that was her, for one part, she probably knew that was her guy. With the she, blue van, and yeah. Oh, excuse me. Oh, Lord. <laughs> and she knew what he had already done. Right, so that's terrifying. But she said, like, also, like, there was something about his eyes. Like, she's like, he wasn't looking at me. It was like he was looking through uh-huh. me, you know? like this. Yeah. So, like, that's, I don't know. So, she became suspicious of him, but like you said, probably because she thought, like, this, you know, this Mm -hmm. is him. Then, she noticed that there was blue carpeting on the interior of the van. I don't know, this guy had a thing for blue, I guess. I mean, it probably came that way. So was the 80s. Yeah. So, because she knew that blue fibers were found on Catherine DeMauro's body, this absolute badass bitch had the wherewithal to covertly snag some fibers from the door jam of Pinnell's van. <laughs> like, round of applause for this rock star, please. Like, and on the episode she said, like, she was like, oh, this is such, like, a nice van, you know. Oh, so can you put the light on, like, so I can, like, scope it. Like, I want to check it out or whatever. Mm-hmm. And when she saw the blue carpet, she asked him to, um open the door like the sliding door so Uh she could see it and she's like feeling the carpet and she's like oh this is so nice or whatever and Mm -hmm. she like took some fibers Mm -hmm. from it but like what a badass and like Mm -hmm. she said the and the uh the other detectives were like they were watching her like lean into the van and stuff and they were like back up like no abort mission yeah because like you know they told her don't ever get in a vehicle Mm mm-hmm but she was, she, she on, they interviewed her and she said, I knew that this was probably my guy and I was going to try to do everything I could to, you know, to get him. And she's like, and I knew my, I had, I had my own gun and I knew my team had my back. Mm-hmm. 
But I mean, he could have easily pushed her in the van. Yeah, but they were they, they were could right see there. Her. Yeah. So, so Pinnell kept insisting that Officer Tashner get in the van, but when she refused, making up some excuse about being tired from partying all day and needing to sleep, he got angry and drove off. So, as I already alluded to, when police ran the license plate of the vehicle through the system, they found that the van was registered to Stephen Brian Pinnell a local electrician who was married with two kids. Your normal, everyday guy, just as the FBI had predicted. So, detectives then began tailing Pinnell, watching his every move. And in the meantime, the carpet fibers Officer Tashner pulled from his van were sent to the FBI crime lab for analysis and comparison to the fibers found on Catherine DeMauro's body. So, their surveillance team watched would watch Pinnell and one night they watched him enter his home and you know they saw that all the lights went out so they assumed he had turned in for the night Mm -hmm. and they didn't continue surveilling him that night and that was a mistake that detectives would come to regret later because he wasn't done for the night oh wow so on september 20th 1988 just six days after officer tashner's encounter with pinnell a young woman's body was discovered on the rocks by the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal, mm-hmm. which is the same canal where Margaret Fenner's body was located. Mm-hmm. The body was later identified as 22-year-old Newcastle County resident Michelle Gordon, also known to police as a sex worker. Man. Michelle was last seen on September 16, 1988, so four days prior. Yeah, four days before her body was found. She was last seen. Um, on Route 40, getting into a blue Ford panel van. This eyewitness knew both Michelle Gordon and Stephen Brian Pinnell and was able to immediately identify the vehicle. Wow. Right. That never happens. (laughs) Right. Um, Michelle was also a known cocaine user, and the Emmy testified that she was the only victim who died while being tortured because the drugs in her system basically, like, I guess made her heart incapable of withstanding the adrenaline, the, the shock of, you know, the beating. Um, but he did classify the manner of her death as homicide. Yeah. Because, I mean, you're torturing her, she so dies, like, you still killed her. Right. So it, it wasn't necessarily blunt force trauma or strangulation. It was more of a... Um, a she died called? before he could strangle her. and Right. So it was, like, more of a coronary issue. Right, like her her heart gave out, I guess, because mm-hmm. of the drugs she was on, and mm-hmm. and look, I'm not victim blaming, but she was a cocaine user, and I'm not judging. I mean, hey, but I'm just giving you the facts. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I'm sure you've probably figured out by now, Michelle Gordon had injuries very similar to those found on both Shirley Ellis and Catherine Demaro, including binding of her hands and feet. So, after Michelle's body was found, investigators are clearly upset because while they were surveilling Pinnell, he struck again. Or their, well, their killer struck again. And this time, they weren't 100% sure mm-hmm. it was him. So, detectives started to think, you know, maybe, maybe we have the wrong man. I was about to say. You know, I mean, that, that does happen, you know. Well, because they thought he was done that night. Mm-hmm. And they thought, no way it was him. Maybe it's somebody else. You right. Because they're bad. Right. And I didn't actually include this in my script, but I'm going to talk about it. Apparently, when Officer Tashner started, like, the decoy operation, she met, came across another man in a blue van one night. Mm-hmm. And she got the plate, and they, like, 
ran it and he was just being like really suspicious and really like aggressive with her and he told her he was like a school teacher or something mm-hmm. well when they ran his information they didn't tell, say his name but he was a school married school teacher and when they went they got a search warrant for his house but all they found was like in the attic they found like basically like S&M pornographic videos and like sex toys and like just but I mean that doesn't make you a murderer right it just means you a freak right but anyway they questioned him but they never had enough like to well I mean he was a school teacher too I feel like that didn't check off their box right yeah like working with his hands and stuff Uh but that's also kind of I mean I don't know I guess I shouldn't judge people for what they're doing on the on their own time but I don't know but anyway yeah like so that's why I'll never have kids (laughs) No, but that was, my point was like, yeah, they, they, I mean, they could have had the wrong man, you yeah. know? But, so detectives are really frustrated. Like, they, they haven't caught this guy yet. And, like, the detective said they took it home with them a lot of times. Like, oh, yeah. That, oh, yeah. Yeah, like, that they, you know, they didn't save this girl. They weren't able to save her. And the FBI told the detectives that sometimes serial killers will go into a frenzy and escalate the rate or the frequency in which they kill and that is something that the detectives were, like, desperately trying to avoid. Mm-hmm. But on September 23rd, 1988, just three days after Michelle Gordon's body was found, another woman went missing. Jesus. This time, it was 26-year-old Kathleen Meyer, a Brookmont Farms resident who was last seen alive hitchhiking along Route 40 around 9.30 p.m. She was seen accepting a ride from a blue Ford van by an off-duty police officer. And this officer was aware of a blue van being connected, possibly being connected to the murders. So he wrote down the plate number, which, what do you know? It turns out it was registered to Stephen Brian Pinnell. Kathleen Meyer's body has never been found. What? Yeah. However, blood stains found in Pinnell's van matched a sample of Meyer's blood. So it's believed that Pinnell did murder her, especially because, you know, the off-duty cop saw her getting into his van. Why and then they found her blood in his van. They couldn't interfere? I mean... I don't know. Follow? I mean... Yeah, I guess. Police continued to surveil Pinnell while waiting for the results from the FBI on the blue fibers. Officers observed Pinnell repeatedly driving along the same highway corridor where Officer Tashner was undercover. Detectives noted that Pinnell would go home, all the lights in the house would be turned off, and then he would later leave again for a couple of hours. Most of the time in the middle of the night. So, like, he would just, like, make it appear that to his wife and kids that, like, he was... Asleep, Asleep in bed? Yeah. He probably waited till his wife hit that first REM cycle, and then he <laughs> would roll out. Um, eventually, the FBI contacted the detectives to inform them that the fibers taken from Pinnell's van, drumroll, were a match to those found on Catherine DeMauro's body. But, like, I feel like we all knew that at this point. Duh. On September 30th, 1988, the police stopped Pinnell for a traffic offense and, while searching his van, uncovered a blood stain, which would eventually be forensically matched to Catherine DeMauro. So, there was Catherine... Ma- Kath- Catherine not Catherine. Kathleen Kathleen Meyer's Meyer. blood was in his van, but so was Catherine DeMauro's. Mm-hmm. So, but Kathleen... Kathleen's body's never been found. That's, still. I hate those. I know. Blue fibers and pieces of red cloth were taken from the van. Because I don't know if I said this, but 
Catherine DeMauro, in addition to the blue fiber, she also had a couple of, like, red pieces, like, on her, I think near her face. Mm-hmm. I think I forgot to say that. My bad. Search warrants were subsequently issued for Pinnell's home, shed, vehicles, and person. Everything. Right. While performing the search of Pinnell's home, detectives noticed a shed on the property. And when they went into the shed, the detective said it was, like, the weirdest thing because there was, like, this bar that would go over the door once you're in so that nobody could, like, push it open, like, when you're what in there. The fuck? Yeah, what do you think he was doing in there? Honestly, I don't know. You know, like, like an old barn door, like, you know, you know what I'm talking about, like, the, the board that goes yeah. across it? Yeah, like that, but, like, you can't push it in. That's, it was on the inside of the door. Yeah, so, like, when he was in there, he would lock himself in the shed, and nobody could get in. Whatever. Yeah. So, what was he doing Like, there? sketch. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's who knows endless possibilities. Yeah, as far as I know, I don't think he ever took any of his victims there. Yeah. But, um, Evidence? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Detectives also located a pornographic video, and when they played it, they noticed that it was like, you know, with the v, it was a VHS, because uh-huh. this was the 80s. So, you know, if you don't, you know, be kind, please rewind. Because <laughs> if you don't, it's set to a certain stopping point when you put it back in, the mm-hmm. VCR. So this tape was queued up basically to the exact part of this pornographic video that showed sadistic treatment of a female, including breast mutilation. Oh, wow. So as a result of all these searches, police seized a buck knife, which Pinnell had in his pocket, eight pairs of pliers, a bag of unused flexicuffs, Mm -hmm. a hammer, and two rolls of duct tape. And during the search of Pinnell's van, police also found a torture kit, which consisted of pliers, a whip, handcuffs, needles, knives, and restraints. That's your guy. Yeah. So, Stephen Pinnell was arrested on November 29th, 1988, a year to the day. A year to the day after he committed his first murder. Wow. I saw that date and I was like, no way. A year to the day. That honestly, like, no, the detectives couldn't save all those girls but imagine how many people they saved catching him in a year yeah i know i feel like that's super quick it for, was for a serial, for a serial killer, killer. Yeah. i mean gary ridgeway the um green river killer who was murdering um prostitutes or sex work who's murdering sex workers mm-hmm. in i think seattle area mm-hmm. wherever green river is anyway they didn't catch him i think he was operating in like the 80s and they didn't catch him till 2001 what about dtl Oh, yeah, Derek Todd too, yeah. So, anyway, the the point was that, um, I mean, I know detectives, like, were really, really down on themselves for not saving all these women, but you don't know how many women they really did save by catching him in a year. That's so quick for a serial killer. Yeah. I, I had, like, the weirdest thought just now, like, you don't hear of serial killers today. Knock you better, on wood. You better not even speak that to, into existence. Knock on wood, but I feel like... We haven't heard about one in a while. Well, that and and I just feel like in today's day and age, it's you know crime, um, crime scene analysis, mm-hmm. DNA, like that's yeah. so advanced. Mm-hmm. Like it would be more like a spree killer, probably yeah. than a, you know. Right. Not just because you said that. We're gonna hear about a serial killer like next week. <laughs> Hope not. So upon his arrest. For three counts of murder. Um, Hold up. That don't add up. What? Three counts? Three? Mm -hmm. There was like five victims, right? Is it five? Yeah. Well, 
Kathleen Meyer's body was never, never found. found. So you can't charge him if you yeah. have a body. Um, he was charged with the murder of Shirley Ellis, Catherine Kath- Morrow, and Michelle Gordon. Okay. And then Kathleen Meyer was the fourth. Was the fourth, and they never found her body. Was there a fifth? There one? were. I thought there was five. Oh, yeah, Margaret Finner. Sorry. Yeah, you're right. Margaret Finner, but she was the one that was in the water. Oh, right, So right, they right. could never connect. Like, no one's ever been charged with her murder. So, Pinnell exercised his right to remain silent, something that will become a theme for him. I mean, that's his right. Yeah. So, in preparation for trial, Pinnell underwent a psychiatric evaluation in 1991 which was later submitted to the Delaware Supreme Court, which cleared him of depression, paranoia, and psychosis. Mm -hmm. So this evaluation described Pinnell as, quote, a pleasant, attractive, friendly 33-year-old man who related well to the examiner, end quote. Attractive is a stretch. Really? Let me go look at his picture. He's got beady little eyes. Yeah, he does, but he's not, I mean, he's he's not hideous, but... I like his beard. Moving on. <laughs> Pinnell's own defense lawyer, Eugene Morrow, had trouble reconciling the monster who committed these heinous crimes with the person that he came to know and through the it, course of... Oh, Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, like through the course of representing him. Mr. Morrow told Delaware today, quote, his acts were unspeakable, but it's hard to connect the Stephen Pinnell I got to know with the person who committed these horrific crimes. The psychiatric evaluations never diagnosed him with any mental health issues, end quote. That's scary. Right. So, as I said, Pinnell was charged with three counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Shirley Ellis, Catherine DeMauro, and Michelle Gordon. Prior to Pinnell's trial, his defense attorney, Eugene Moore, argued that Officer Tashner did not have the authority to seize the strands of blue carpet from Pinnell's van, and therefore, the fiber evidence should be ruled inadmissible and thrown out. Motion to suppress. Thankfully, though, Superior Court Judge Richard... Oh, God, I'm going to butcher this. Jeblin? Giebling? Giebling? I don't know. That guy? Yeah. The judge denied these claims because the carpet was in plain view once Pinnell opened <laughs> the door. It wasn't, a search warrant wasn't needed. No, because he opened the door and wanted her to get in. So it was free game at that point. Just like when you pick up somebody's trash. Like once you put your trash on the street, what's that it's called? No yours. What? Collection? No. Trash pull. No, it's something else. Oh. I don't know. Pinnell's trial began on September 26, 1989, and lasted over two months. In order to support the serial aspect of the murders, prosecutors were allowed to introduce evidence regarding the disappearance of Margaret Fenner, who we did talk about earlier. Mm -hmm. She was the fifth one. Um, But the jury didn't know her name or that she was found murdered. They just knew that she disappeared. Mm Mm-hmm. So, prosecutors also introduced the blood DNA evidence found in Pinnell's van. The prosecution had medical and DNA experts testify that the blood found in the van matched Catherine DeMauro. Uh According to court documents, the company that performed the DNA testing stated that the frequency of the DNA banding patterns of Catherine DeMauro is approximately, quote, 1 in 180 billion, end quote, in the Caucasian population. Basically, like, it's her. Uh Like, it's her. Um, and actually, Pinnell's case was the first time DNA evidence was allowed to be used in a criminal trial. I mean, this was in 89. Like, DNA was in its infancy mm-hmm. then, you know? 
Um, Agent John Douglas, director of the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit, also testified as an expert on serial killers. I'll get into why he's an expert on this topic in just a second. Douglas testified that after reviewing the deaths of the three women, Shirley Ellis, Catherine DeMauro, and Michelle Gordon, it was his opinion that all three of these murders were committed by the same individual. Mm -hmm. And he was also part of the team that did the profile, Mm -hmm. as promised. We're going to discuss why John Douglas was qualified to be an expert on serial killers. And you should recognize the name John Douglas, but I'm sure you don't. I'm going to roll my eyes at you. But anyway, John Douglas is basically the father of criminal profiling as we know it today. Mm-hmm. He wrote the autobiographical book Mindhunter. Recognizing it? Nope. Continue. I hate you. The book was turned into the Netflix show of the same name in 2017. How do you not know what Mindhunter is? Because I don't be remembering shit. You know this. Anyway, it's an amazing show. And I'll admit I haven't watched season two yet, but I need to. But anyway, the character Holden Ford in the show is actually based on John Douglas. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, Douglas's partner, Robert Ressler, actually coined the term serial killer. Oh, cool. So, throughout his career, Douglas interviewed almost every widely known serial killer. That's awesome. Edmund Kemper, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, BTK, John Wayne Gacy, to name a few. He interviewed serial killers in order to better understand their minds and how they ticked, hence the title Mindhunter. Mm -hmm. So Douglas also created the Behavioral Science Unit's Criminal Profiling Program. And in addition to this, he used what he learned during his interviews with serial killers to train FBI agents at the BSU at Quantico Uh on profiling. And he also assisted law enforcement in tracking down uh, murderers or creating profiles for like really high profile cases. He actually created a profile of the Green River Killer, mm-hmm. which closely matched the perpetrator was eventually who was eventually arrested and convicted of the murders, Gary Ridgway. Douglas also consulted on John Benet Ramsey's murder. <sighs> Don't get me started. I know. He was a key member of the legal team that aided in the release of the West Memphis Three. Dude, can I meet this guy? And he con- conducted an analysis of the Meredith Kircher murder case in <sighs> Italy where he concluded that Amanda Knox was innocent. Wow. So, John... She was definitely innocent, but... I, see, I don't know enough about that one. Uh, a podcast that I listened to the other day. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wrongful Convictions. Mm-hmm. She w- was in a, Like, she basically told the whole episode. Oh, really? It was her on oh, the episode. okay. And it was phenomenal. I'll have to listen to it. So... John Douglas has been the inspiration in, like, tons of different pop culture TV shows and movies, not just Mindhunter. Apparently, FBI profiler Jason Gideon on Criminal Minds has been confirmed to be based on Douglas. Oh, that's pretty cool. Douglas also believes that he was the inspiration for the character Jack Crawford in Silence of the Lambs and Hannibal, um, although this claim has been disputed. But I'll get off my John Douglas soapbox now. I know, like I'm fangirling. I'm only slightly obsessed with him, and I find him like completely fascinating. Like, you like, he wakes up every like. I, I, if I created this is greatness. I was about to say like if I created criminal profiling, I would like. Oh, he's I, a cute old man. I know he is. He's seventy five years old. You are a baddie, John. Right. Okay, so, like, you. maybe I'll do a whole episode on John Douglas eventually. Patreon. I just, Patreon. Yes. Yes. <laughs> if you want to hear an episode on John Douglas on Patreon, 
hit us up. Because I know there's got to be more people who are just, I'm fascinated with him. That's like, um, Walsh, Walsh, John Walsh. John Walsh. Yeah. Yeah. So, back at the ranch, <laughs> um, Pinnell's trial almost ended in a mistrial. Oh, God. Don't get me. Oh. oh. During, <laughs> during her closing arguments, Prosecutor Kathleen Jennings stood in front of Pinnell and said, quote, Mr. Marr told you in the opening statement in their cases many, many weeks ago that he stood behind his client. Ladies and gentlemen, I stand in front of him and I say, Stephen Brian, Brian Pinnell, you murdered Shirley Ellis, you murdered Kathy DeMauro, and you murdered Michelle Gordon. Ladies and gentlemen, please find him guilty, end quote. If you remember, Mr. Marr was the, who the prosecutor referred to is Pinnell's lawyer. Uh-huh. And after this statement, uh, Mr. Moore objected like he lost his mind. And he requested a mistrial on the grounds of prosecutorial misconduct. I mean, can they not say that? I feel like I've... I feel like I've heard similar... I don't know. I mean, in TV shows, which I really you know. <laughs> Maybe that's what I'm basing my knowledge on, and I shouldn't. However, the court denied the request for a mistrial. Instead... The statement was struck from the record, and the jury was instructed to totally disregard the statement made by Prosecutor Jennings. Okay, so I'm not saying the court should have granted a mistrial. However, I don't think telling a jury to disregard a statement that was made is that effective. I was just thinking the like, same thing. I mean, like, how do you forget what was just said? I mean, if I was on the jury and I'd heard that statement, 100% would have been like, yes, sis, that son of a bitch is guilty. You write, like, you know, so maybe I won't ever be selected as a jury because for a jury. So, you you know, I was almost selected for federal trial in the Danziger Bridge trial, which I really want to cover that case. But a couple weeks ago, I got another paper. What? I didn't get selected, but it's just saying. For what? Federal jury selection. Federal. Where do you get? Why? I hope I get picked. They have a hard on for you, I swear. They do. I've never gotten chosen, though. Maybe this is my lucky... Hopefully, it's not when I'm on vacation, because I'll be hella mad. Actually, I lie. I have gotten one before. I got one, but I was in college, so I got out of it. And I think I got one when my daughter was a baby. My mm-hmm. oldest daughter was a baby. And I was like... I had to, like, write a letter. About breastfeeding? Yeah, I had to write a letter and tell them I was breastfeeding. And mm-hmm. so, like, either they had to give me pumping breaks every, like, three hours. Mm-hmm. So, they just, like... I didn't even ever have to go. No. So... Yeah, I had to fill out this paper and saying, like, yes, I still live here. Um, yes, I'm still available. Um, I'm not a racist. Like, just basically, yeah. like, basic questions. So, it's not saying that I'm subpoenaed to go to jury selection, but it's just kind of putting me in the pool. Yeah. In the jury pool. Yeah. Hmm. <sighs> we'll see y'all. So, on Thanksgiving Day, November 23rd, 1989, after eight days of deliberations, which is still the longest... In Delaware history. Wow. The jury returned two guilty verdicts for the deaths of Shirley Ann Ellis and Catherine DeMauro. Unfortunately, the jury could not agree on a verdict regarding the death of Michelle Gordon. Like, they were just deadlocked. Wait, isn't that the one... Excuse me, isn't that the one where the the cops saw her get in the car? I don't think so. That was Kathleen. They never found Kathleen's body. Oh, yeah, 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 you're right, you're right. Um... Oh, oh, no, Michelle was the one that died from the torture. Oh, and that's the... Is that the one where somebody knew the victim and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, when it came time to hand down Pinnell's sentence, the jury deadlocked again regarding the death penalty. As a result, Pinnell was sentenced to two life terms in 1990. 
So, as we almost always see Amanda's favorite thing, Pinnell's appeals process was started by his lawyer fairly quickly after his trial and subsequent conviction. Do you have, like, a time frame? Like, or can you just get the ball rolling? No, I'm pretty sure you can, like, immediately start. Um, Pinnell's lawyer argued that the seizure of the fiber evidence was unconstitutional and a slew of other ridiculous claims, and I'm about to make you really happy, but... The state was basically like, okay, I see your appeals, and I raise you another fucking indictment, asshole. The state indicted Pinnell for the murders of Michelle Gordon and Kathleen Meyer based on new evidence. Wow. I see you, Delaware. I see you. Pinnell requested to represent himself in this trial. <laughs> Boy, if you don't go sit down. What an idiot. Oh, just wait. So, this request was granted. Following this, Pinnell shocked everyone when he pled no contest to the murders. Even though he pled no contest, Pinnell asked the Superior Court to sentence him to death without a confession. Like, what? How does that work? <laughs> like, that makes zero sense to me, but like, okay, dude. Like, okay. Yeah, like, he never confessed. I guess when you plead no contest, it, it's not it's, guilty. It's or... not guilty or, yeah, but he's like... I'm going to plead no contest, but go ahead and uh, kill me. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Like, okay. So, at a hearing to determine if Pinnell's life should be spared, he testified and basically argued for his own death, saying, quote, The law was developed from one book, and it's that book I quote from. In Numbers, chapter 35, verse 30, Whoever kills a person, the person shall be put to death. Also, in Genesis, chapter 9, verse 6, Whoever shall... Is he quoting the Bible? Yes. Okay, go on. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. This court has found me guilty on the testimony of witnesses, so I ask that the sentence be death as said by the state's law and God's laws. That's all I have to say, end quote. Okay, I have a real problem with this asshole and anybody else who tries to bring God and the Bible into their murder trial. Like, no, sir. You are going directly to hell, and you will likely be Satan's bitch. Like, do not bring God into this. Like, like he don't like you. I don't know him. Like, what? I don't... Oh, and I forgot... Doesn't he know that he's going to be on death row for like 25 years before he actually gets murdered or hanged or whatever yeah. it is yeah. that they do? But like, that's not your easy way out. No. And I've actually... Re- I forget where I read it. I'll have to find the source, but... I read somewhere that it actually... No, actually, I think it was um, a podcast. I think it was, like, Woody and um, Woody Overton Uh said it in Real Life, Real Crime or whatever. Uh And he used to be a cop, whatever. But um, he said that it costs the state more money to put someone to death than it does to house them for the rest of their lives. Really? Yeah. Because of all the appeals, you have to pay for all of that. You have to pay for every single appeal. Like, public, if they go public defender route, which most people do, you know. So, it, it costs... No, you said it cost... No, it costs more to, to put, put someone them. to death than if they got a life sentence and you fed them and housed them for the rest of their life. That doesn't make any sense. That's what Woody said. But, like... I know, like, the appeals process is really expensive. For... But that would for be... For the state. Yeah, but that would be for the life sentence. What? Option appeals, yes. Why would he appeal a death? Is that what you mean? The way you, it's confusing. Well, I know I'm gonna talk about this, but like in, in Delaware, um, 
a death sentence, even if you don't want to appeal it, it's automatically appealed to the Supreme oh. Court of Delaware. So, so the appeals on the death sentence. Yeah, is more expensive than housing them for a life sentence. But I guess you have appeals either way. So. Right. That's what I was confused with. But yeah, like, I have a real problem with murderers trying to bring God into shit. Like, just don't. Just fucking don't. So on Halloween 1991, Pinnell got his wish and was sentenced to death. According to Delaware law, all death penalty cases are automatically appealed to the state Supreme Court. Hey, I just said that. <laughs> on February 11th, 1992, Pinnell sat before the five-court judge panel and asked for his own execution. Pinnell is the only person in Delaware history to represent themselves before the state Supreme Court, as well as the only one to ask for death. I mean, yeah, because, like, normal people don't ask to be put to death. Like, what the fuck? And he still refused to admit guilt. He has never confessed. Then what's the point? Well, he did kind of confess when he brought the Bible into it. Right. Right. True. True. Oh, so they put him on the stand in his trial. Like, his, the guilt part, like, when they were, before he was, arraignment. Arraignment, yeah, whatever. Well, arraignment is when the charges are presented to you. Like, the court formally says, this is what you're being charged with. How do you plead? That's no, not that. The actual trial part. So that's of it. just trial. Okay, so the trial part of it, he they put him on the stand, and his lawyer well, said, "You can't put somebody on well, the stand." They well, have he to agreed. Want to. He agreed. Yeah. He agreed to testify. Whatever, tomato, tomato. Well, I mean, not really. Well, yeah. Anyway, so his lawyer said that that really hurt him because he just came off as like cold and like he talked about himself. And, like, just, he was just, like, really cold. Kind of like, like whenever he, that girl said she didn't look at, he didn't look at her, he looked, he looked through, through her. her. Yeah. Right, like, that came across, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, one of the judges who heard Pinnell's argument told DelawareToday.com, quote, The most amazing thing was that he spoke about the crimes in the third person. He never once used the first person. It was a strange, strange thing, end quote. Look, I hate when people use the third person like in everyday normal situations so i can promise you i would want to slit this dude's throat for using the third person in that situation like you're an asshat and a psychopath i don't know pinnell argued as if he was as if he wasn't talking about himself like he told the court quote the perpetrator must have sensed a pleasure in the killings since he did not commit just one but continued in the same depraved manner on the others, this pleasure is evident, end quote. Like, okay, I'm sorry, but fuck this dude. Like, what an, what a freaking jerk off. Like, so the court overall agreed that Pinnell should be executed for his crimes and a date was set for March 14th, 1992. Mm-hmm. That's why when you said he was going to be on death row for years, I was like, eh. No, I know, but... But usually they are. Yeah. So, Pinnell's wife, um, Kathy, fought her husband's execution until the very end, even against her husband's wishes. Pinnell told anyone who would listen that he wanted to die because his time incarcerated was causing his wife and their children so much pain. Oh, so like the absence of their father because he died? It's still the absence. Mm -hmm. Like, he's still going to be absent whether he's in jail or dead. True. But, like, you being in prison is causing your family pain? How the fuck do you think the families of the women you murdered feel? Like, what a narcissistic asshole. Like, what? But, anyway. 
Kathy fought her husband's execution, stating that his mental state was clearly compromised due to the fact that he wanted to die. No, he probably wanted to die so they could never get him to talk. Because he probably knew that they were going to keep mm-hmm. keep on him and keep on him, and eventually he was going to talk. So he didn't want to do that. So you know what? He's like, yo. Yeah, but if you're already sentenced to X amount of years in prison, it doesn't matter if you talk after that. It's done. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, but he probably didn't want to do that. Like, just like to hurt them even more. Be in control. Right. According to an article by the New York Times, the motions for a stay were filed for Miss Pinnell by W. Michael Jacobs of the American Bar Association's Death Penalty Litigation Project, who argued that Mr. Pinnell was committing a foolish suicide and, Basically. and yeah, and in an irrational act and one which Miss Pinnell wishes to do everything in her power to stop. Ultimately, though, a Newcastle County Superior Court judge ruled that Mrs. Pinnell had not proven that her husband was mentally impaired. Later that same day, the state Supreme Court agreed, giving the following statement. Quote, there is not a scintilla of evidence that Pinnell is incompetent, end quote. By the way, scintilla means particle, according to Google. I can't stand when people use words like, just use the word particle, damn it. Go on. Or not a shred yeah. of evidence. Or cr- may I have a crumb of evidence? <laughs> a crumb of attention? Yeah. <laughs> so basically it just means like there's zero evidence that he was mentally incompetent, which I can't argue with. I think he's just a coward who like wanted to die and he wasn't mentally Narcissist. ill. Right. So after his wife's failed attempts to obtain a last minute stay, 34-year-old Stephen Brian Pinnell's death sentence was carried out via lethal injection at 9.49 a.m., on March 14, 1992, in a trailer located on the grounds of the James T. Vaughn Correctional Center in Smyrna, Delaware, where he served time prior to his execution. The reason there's a trailer, I'll get to that. I saw your face. She was like, what? (laughs) The inside of the trailer contained a glass-enclosed death chamber, along with an adjoining room for witnesses to watch Pinnell be executed. There were about two dozen people present for Pinnell's execution, official witnesses, prison staff, and reporters, but there were two people who were denied the right to attend the execution, and they stood outside the prison fence with other onlookers, including anti-death penalty advocates. These two individuals were Marlene Sims, Michelle Gordon's mother, and Robert H. Barlow, Margaret Lynn Finner's father. Both of these parents' requests to be present when Pinnell was executed were denied. Apparently, after researching other states' execution guidelines, prison officials decided it was best not to allow any witnesses who may cause an emotional scene to attend. Uh, Okay. That's really shitty. Like, his victims' families weren't allowed to attend to witness justice being served to the man who forever change their lives when he callously took their loved one's life like I'm, I'm sorry but that's fucking terrible and margaret's father robert said like they basically just sent him a letter like they didn't even like bother calling him to tell him like or explain to him they sent a letter and he's like i'd love to go to an execution like not just not to be morbid or anything just to see like because i'm i'm pro death penalty i'm mm-hmm. not even gonna lie um depending on the case obviously mm-hmm. and but I go back and forth. Like, I would want to see, my, like, how I would react to, to witnessing something and, mm-hmm. like, what kind of emotions. Yeah. Right. I experience. Right. 
So Pinnell's last meal was actually breakfast since he was executed in the morning. And his last breakfast included two servings of French toast with orange juice and coffee. When the warren, warren, <laughs> when the warden asked if Pinnell had any last words, he just shook his head and said nothing. A March 15th, 1992 article published by the Baltimore Sun stated that up until his death, Pinnell had it better in some ways than the survivors of the women he tortured and murdered, and he got just about everything he asked for. Exactly. The article stated, quote, when he wanted his steak cooked medium rare, he got it. When he wanted to read, he got books. When he wanted to write letters, he got stationery. When he wanted to smoke, he got cigarettes. When he wanted to, and when he wanted to die, he died, end quote. I thought that was just like a really powerful quote. That's really and, fucking shitty. Yeah, and it made me really angry. So, prior to Pinnell, the state of Delaware had not executed a prisoner since 1946. Oh, when, fun fact, the other day I was like, when's the last time somebody has been executed in Louisiana? Did you look it up? Yes. Was it 2009? Mm, 2010. Oh, it was close. Wait, it was a guy in Livingston, wasn't it? I don't know. I didn't even care to look, but I was like, just... I was just curious because I felt like it had been longer than that. It was the guy in Livingston, okay, I guarantee you. Anyway, they had not executed a prisoner since 1946 when drifter Forrest Sturdivant was convicted of murder and hanged. Even though no one had been executed in 46 years, Delaware lawmakers officially changed the method of execution to lethal injection in 1986, which was six years prior to Pinnell being executed. Following Pinnell's execution, 15 other convicted murderers were put to death at the Smyrna Correctional Center per Delaware's DOC website. Mm -hmm. And that is until 2016 when the Delaware Supreme Court ruled capital punishment unconstitutional. Prior to this, though, despite being a small state, Delaware had the third largest number of executions per capita. Wow. That's interesting. But yeah, I told you we were going to talk about the trailer. Mm -hmm. So, like, they hadn't... He was executed in 92 and they hadn't executed anybody in like 46 years so they didn't have like the yeah so um that's why it was like a trailer like they had to basically put together a death chamber because they didn't have one. Oh wow yeah so to this day Pinnell is still the only serial killer ever reported to operate in delaware oh wow which i thought was interesting and that's probably the main reason i picked this case uh-huh. um I guess it makes sense that he's the only serial killer in Delaware because when I think of Delaware, I legitimately think of this, like, peaceful, beautiful, just, like, idyllic place to live. Mm-hmm. Like, something out of a Norman Rockwell painting or something. Girl, I do not know who that is. I cannot stand you. According to americashealthrankings.org, as of 2019, over the last 10 years, violent crime has decreased 40% from... 703 to 424 offenses per 100,000 people. So, it seems like a pretty safe place to live now, you know? Right. And I'm sure you picked up on this already, but Pinnell never confessed. He never gave details. He never explained why. He never told authorities where they could find Kathleen Meyer's body. He didn't even tell, like, it's not like he was, like, fulfilling his sexual desires because he didn't rape them. He didn't. Well, he could have. He could have got off on the torture, though. I guess. But I mean, they didn't find any semen. If he did, we don't know because he never. Like they would have found semen in his van, right? Maybe. Maybe just you know, went in his pants. I don't know. Please don't say that again. (laughs) I hate you. (laughs) So 
I don't know, like, Pinnell took all of these secrets to his grave, and that is just, like, the worst kind of asshole. Like, I know we've said this before, like, about Derek Todd Lee, but, and you said this earlier, like, if you're already going to be put to death, why not talk? Mm. Like, why not do the decent thing and give these families some closure, some answers? Like, there's honestly a special place in hell for these types of assholes who just refuse to talk and give their victims' families a little bit of closure. Like, it's like they're re-victimizing them all over again. Mm-hmm. And it's honestly, like, so disgusting. But that's probably why they do it. Right. You know, they probably get off on knowing all the details and taking all these details to the grave with them, knowing that no one will ever know what truly happened. Because the only people that can and tell that you are dead. just means you're a psychopath. <sighs> right. I can't keep a, secret, keep a secret to save my life. Yeah. I don't know. It's just so sad. Like, I don't know. So, according to Prosecutor Kathleen Jenkins, the FBI even attempted to come in and interview Pinnell to get an understanding of why he did what he did. Like, what was his motive? But, of course, he refused to talk. Like, what a jerk-off. But, oh, also one really quick tidbit. After the trials ended, um, and he was, like, convicted and everything, Mm -hmm. the prosecutor, um, Kathleen um, Jennings, Jennings. uh, she got a bouquet of flowers with a card that read, um, I'm paraphrasing, so don't come for me, but something along the lines of, from all the Route 40 women, thank you for giving us a voice. And who'd she give it to? No, the prosecutor got that. Oh. From, I don't know, oh, like wow. a anonymous, like, she got a bouquet of flowers and it said, you know, from all the Route 40 women, thanks for giving us a voice. Because she, you know, yeah. got the conviction, so. I don't know, that was just, huh. that one was Bananas. What a fucking loser. Right? I know. Okay, if we learned anything, and I'm not judging, but if we learned anything from this episode, don't hitchhike. I mean, it's a different day. No, I know. It's a different day and and stuff, but... You know, and that's true. Like, we always tell people, like, back then, like, don't hitchhike, but now you're going to get an Uber with a complete stranger that you don't know, and you're going to pay him. Hey, bitch, I was a fucking Uber driver. (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i don't know i just feel like so many hitchhikers like have gotten murdered it's just but i'm sure there are uber drivers who have murdered people too so i guess well y'all that's the case of serial killer stephen brian pinnell also known as the route 40 killer or the corridor killer thanks for listening if you liked today's episode please rate and review us maybe we'll start reading a few of the nice reviews on our episodes Follow us on Instagram at Homicide Homegirls, Facebook at Homicide Homegirls Podcast, and Twitter at Homegirls Pod. If you want to suggest an episode, use the form located on our Facebook page or send us an email or a Facebook message. Bye, guys. Have a good week.